Good morning and welcome to today's Wilson Center discussion, Winning the Human Race Against Time, a conversation with His Royal Highness Prince Al-Hassan bin Talal of Jordan, with our President and CEO, Ambassador Mark Green. West Asia and North Africa is in a race against time. Within the next 30 years, we will see increasing air pollution and climate change-induced heat waves and droughts that will push the region closer to uninhabitability, triggering even more levels of human insecurity and large-scale displacement, which today is estimated at 100 million worldwide, the vast majority in the region. And half of those displaced are children whose future is marred in uncertainty and increasingly the absence of hope. Today's discussion is not only timely, but critical to unpack and better understand the pressing climate change challenges the region faces and the need to implement a human dignity approach to solutions. It is truly my honor to introduce His Royal Highness, Prince Hassan bin Talal, whose commitment and tireless work has long been focused on a human dignity-centered approach to security. Prince Hassan served as Jordan's crown prince for over three decades. He was the late King Hussein's closest political advisor, confidant, and deputy. He played a central role in overseeing various initiatives, developmental plans in Jordan, and has a long record of seeking to build a collaborative framework around shared water resources, ensuring the sustainable use of energy and water, and building the livelihoods of people in the Middle East, again, centered on human dignity. He's a founding member of various institutions, including the West Asian North Africa Institute, whose mission is centered on addressing the region's problems through dialogue. He has worked on numerous humanitarian causes, serving as the chairman of the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on Water and Sanitation and the High Level Forum for the Blue Peace Middle East Plan. Your Royal Highness, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, you couldn't have chosen a more suitable platform than that of the Wilson Center to discuss uh, with President, President and CEO Ambassador Mark Green all these topics. Ambassador Green has been at the helm of various institutions and initiatives that have been focused on finding solutions to global challenges, primarily humanitarian and developmental. And before I turn this to you, Ambassador Green, a reminder to our audience to submit your questions in the comments box or tweet them to at Wilson Center MEP. Ambassador Green, over to you. Great, thanks, Marissa. And Your Highness, welcome back to the Wilson Center. You have been a, a, a contributor and a thought leader in our work. Uh, Your Highness, would you like to offer some opening comments as our conversation gets underway? Thank you, Ambassador Green. I'd just like to um, quote someone I admire enormously, and that is Christopher Clark, who is actually the Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University in his brilliant new book, Prisoners, Prisoners of Time. If you recall, he wrote Walking uh, the Sleepwalkers, Walking into World War I. And in this book, he quotes um, Robert H. Latif writing on future war. And I quote, we have evolved, we have evolved, that's not a contradiction in terms, 
in the direction of total surveillance, unmanned warfare, standoff weapons, surgical strikes, cyber operations, and clandestine operations by elite forces whose battlefield is global. That, I would say, against the fact that water became a human right in 2010, healthy environment, however, has become a fundamental right last year. And all of that against the fact that we hear in these wonderful meetings on how steps are being taken, not least of all the G7 meeting to put a cap on Russian uh, oil supplies and in uh, expectation, as we all know, of increased uh, fuel and gas coming from this region in which I live, living as I do in a country which is in the middle between oil and gas on the one side and uh, waterways and uh, 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 petroleum pipelines on, on the other. In fact, living in what is often known as CEP, the circular error probability of missiles landing anywhere with any form of warhead uh, known to man. All of that, uh, if I may, uh, Ambassador, uh, with, the, with the following fact in mind, that the pledges made at COP26 to the global north, rejecting the global south's proposal for a finance facility to address climate change loss and damage, and instead favoring a three-year Glasgow dialogue to discuss funding arrangements, a conference where wealthy governments pledged the total of $960 million, an amount far below the annual $70 billion in developing countries, where that figure is the very least we think we need now which could rise to 300 billion a year by 2030, according to the United Nations. So my question is, as uh, Yuval Harari puts it with his usual eloquence, is it not true that we have the dubious distinction of being the deadliest species in the annals of life? Everything to uh, uh, arm to the teeth and destroy our planet and nothing uh, to maintain the confidence and the trust of the men, women, and children dying as we speak in temperatures that go beyond 50 degrees Celsius in uh, the in East Africa and uh, indeed uh, in uh, our so-called Levant and Middle East region, Southwest Asian region, if you will. So I, I would like to say that it's a, a, an extremely depressing picture. There is progress being made, but the progress I seek in our conversation is to commit ourselves to move from humiliation to dignity, to human dignity for a future of global solidarity. Thank you. Your Highness, very thoughtful. We appreciate those thoughts and comments. As I mentioned, this is not your first time uh, speaking to the Wilson Center nor contributing to the Wilson Center. Back in March, you wrote a very moving piece called Civilization and Its Discontents, The Price of Human Dignity. Uh, in fact, I invite everyone who's tuning in today to go to the wilsoncenter.org backslash MEP, part of our website, 
and they can see uh, your contribution for itself. But if I may, I'd like to read something that you wrote. It touches upon what you've just discussed, but perhaps you can flesh it out for us a little bit more. You wrote that civilization has not been doing very well as an organizing principle lately. The idea of joint action, a defining feature of any community, when confronted with the realities of climate change, of the swelling numbers of the forcibly displaced, and the globe's many frozen conflicts. In other words, we're not doing very well right now in collaboration to take these challenges on. What are your thoughts on how we can get past politics and self-interest to truly collaborate as a civilization to take these challenges on? Well, let me take the word civilization a step further. There is nothing cultural about globalization that I can identify. So when we speak about globalization, I refer to the founder of the term geopolitics, I believe, Sir, the late Sir Holford John Mackinder, who founded the London School of Economics. And he asserted that whoever commands Afro-Eurasia, or the world island, as he called it, commands the world. And that was in reference to precisely the region from the Baltic to the Black Sea to the Indian Ocean that is today in the eye of the storm. It is a reference to a region as a historical site of entanglement and critical intercontinental gateway from east to west or west to east, and indeed from north to south as new horizons are being explored in Africa. But the world island becoming a focal point of climate change is not a civilizational issue. It's not a civilizational uh, message until the culture of uh, preventative action is adopted by us all. We all read the narrative, but in, uh, in effect, we continue to plunge from one humanitarian crisis, man against man, man against nature, man-made disasters, armed conflict, and especially because international cooperation is lacking. So what civilization is it that brings us together? We are by 2050, facing a situation where protracted heat waves and sandstorms may make the Middle East and North Africa uninhabitable. So you will forgive me if my voice sounds some, somewhat shrill, but today in 2022, I look at my grandsons who are eight and six. I have, we are blessed with nine grandchildren from 28 to six years old. What is their future going to be and that of hundreds of millions of others like them between now and 2050. Although it has contributed only 3% of total global CO2 emissions since 1850, it will be, I mean the MENA region, it will be one of the world's regions hit hardest by climate change and by exploitation in terms of funding trillions of dollars of weapons sale and the uh, funding of the export of oil and gas. So we are living in the middle of uh, an un unbelievable series of, of a set of contradictions. So it may be tempting just to look back to Corona for, for a minute and to view the pandemic or the worst inflation crisis in 40 years as one of events. But both shocks to the global system, to the civilization of which we speak, 
demonstrated in the absence of intra-independence. I respect you, you respect me, and we were joined together in working for, for regional commons, for global commons, only in that event. When we are wired up and interconnected, can we find a recipe for the fragilities and insecurities that we are facing today, so as to man up and face them correctly? Your Highness, let me refer to something else you wrote in your piece, because I think it actually gets at something that you're talking about here. You wrote that yesterday's isms, imperialism, colonialism, racism, and protectionism, and today's isms, populism, ethno-nationalism, chauvinism, and sectarianism, cannot and must not be allowed to be brought together to undermine the rules-based international order, one in need of peaceful revision. In other words, you suggest that we have to have a strong rules-based order to be able to collaborate and take these challenges on. How can we do that, given, I, I think we all agree, the system not working as well as it needs to, and collaboration in short supply? What would you suggest that we all do to get back to that rules-based order that allows us to take these challenges on together? Well, the German political scientist, and I quote again, Wolfgang Strick, has compared modern capitalism to a terminally ill patient suffering from multiple incurable disorders, but whose moral, moribund body is too large to be removed from the scene or replaced by an alternative. And it, as he puts it, it is remarkable how many uh, works start with the word the end, the end of politics, end of liberal democracy, end of the left, end of the right, how democracy ends, and so forth. So I think that in terms of the uh, golden rule, which, as you well know, cannot be claimed for any one philosophy or religion indeed, the successful evolution of communities has depended on its use as a standard through which conflict can be resolved. Avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Today, we seem to be in a, a, a cycle of outdoing each other in uh, policies which are driven by politics. So I would suggest humbly that politics are all very well for the... Uh, channel house of politics worldwide, which is basically to do down your opponents in any means, fair or foul, and generally foul. And policies which transcend the decades should be taken seriously. This, the SDGs of the United Nations have been completely derailed by the recent crises, COVID and war renewing their ugly heads. And this is a point that I want to make. Why is it that we always have to deal with the issues one by one in a siloistic manner? The silos of uh, greed uh, are not described as such. They're described as food and nutrition. But in fact, the overriding factor in food and nutrition are the politics that are depriving uh, regions in the world of the necessary support that they are expected uh, expecting. I, I just like to say that human security 
emphasizes the interconnectedness of threats and responds to them in two ways. They are interlinked, interlinked into a domino effect because each threat feeds on the other. For example, violent conflicts cannot lead to deprivation and poverty, which could lead to resource depletion, education deficits, and so forth. And secondly, threats in a given country or area can spill over to a wider region. For example, we are the second water scarce at the top of the list of water scarce countries in the world. world. Every drop of water that we get comes from our north, from Turkey. There is no regional water and energy community which we have aspired to for years and years and years. The Europeans, after two devastating world wars, finally came to the coal and steel community. These are policies to which we have to commit so that citizens become water citizens, become food citizens, become agents for change. Make reference to the SDGs. In your article, you also point out that uh, the UN Charter itself was a spirit of collaboration. And then you point out how far we have strayed from that in terms of working together. In your article, you wrote, I'm quoting, the time has come for a redefining of the conduct of our relations, of our relations with one another, whether as individuals, corporations, or nation states, and of our relations with our planet Earth. So part of what you're pointing to is that in the past we have collaborated, but we have strayed a long ways from the spirit of those collaborations. Is that what you see? Well, it was Einstein and, and Bertrand Russell, if I recall, who pleaded in 1955, remember your humanity, forget the rest. So what I see exactly is that the UN, with the recently formed, in relative terms, Human Rights Council and Human Rights Initiative, should take it a step further and talk about a law for humanitarian peace, for peace, rather than in peace, because the latter doesn't exist. And while over 20 million people a year are internally displaced by extreme weather disasters over the last 10 years, 80% of those displaced live in my continent, in Asia, home to over a third of the world's poorest people. I cannot honestly suggest to you that with the even more reprehensible, if you will, of 2021 and 2022, I believe November and March, an estimated 241 million doses of anti-COVID were disposed of by G7 countries because they were hoarded and allowed to expire. And here you are, G7, concluding your meetings to speak about putting NATO on full alert and God knows where that is going to take us. So I don't really see a balance of uh, offensive thinking, defensive thinking, whatever the military would like to uh, uh, call it, and an understanding of the major world challenges that the world faces today. 
which are rooted in the political inability to reform international institutions, that is to say, make them more focused, international norms with ethical standards, and in a way, developing guarantees for growth, dignity, and stability for the majority of humanity. It is human dignity that is today suffering from the third world debt crisis, revealing the rot at the heart of the global economy. Your Highness, before we turn it to our audience for some questions, I'd like to pick on, on something that you've said, but also look ahead and really go back to your country and your region. So the region is one of unique contrast. In so many ways, it's the oldest region in the world in terms of civilization, and yet it's the youngest demographically. So as we talk about the challenges that we find ourselves confronting, how can the restless youth who are out there be part of the answer to conflicts and some of these broader challenges that you point to, climate and displacement? How can we do a better job of reaching out and harnessing the energy and the idealism of young people? Uh, the young people are being attracted by two poles at the moment. One is the result of their achievement in good schooling, which still exists in large parts of this region. We were at the top of the list. But we started exporting talent to the Gulf initially in the 70s and 80s, last decades. And I called for a labor compensatory facility. No severance pay. Uh, identification by the ILO of what exactly the, um, uh, the drawing effect of the Gulf uh, would be in terms of the years and requirements. Now, of course, many of our best and the bright and brightest are being paid uh, dignified salaries in the, in the Gulf. And it is obviously to me, when I go to the Fontainebleau, the School of uh, Good Governance in Paris, I ask them, when will you return? That is to say to Jordanians and Arabs, they say only when the criteria is what we know rather than whom we know. So part of the problem is us, that we are still incestuous in our uh, appointment policies and uh, uh, all the rest of it. and. Partly is the international community, which is taking, as we know, the best of the migrants from different parts of the world and offering them a safe haven and, and true passage. But I think that the time is going to come where we simply have to rely on uh, those in the exodus and possibly with means like this, uh, establish a communication in longitudinal communication with people wherever they may be. Young people in our in MENA region, you're right, are over 110 million people, 400 million people in the uh, MENA region. And I just want to say that in terms of uh, our own traditional institutions, such as Zakat, which is another form of effective altruism, that we should start investing in the most vulnerable groups, and that is obviously the young and their uh, right to uh, job opportunities. So I would uh, emphasize the importance of youth, particularly of women who are better educated than the men and yet still are lagging behind for so-called traditional re uh, reasons. And I think the time 
to talk about the uh, uh, future is based entirely on the contribution of our 124 million young people over a quarter of the whole population. But the burden of war goes beyond public health, long-term impact, including the destruction of the environment ecosystem, the obliteration of livelihoods. Look at what's happened to Syria. Look at what's happening in Yemen. Look at what's happening in Lebanon and Iraq. The Arab Middle East is the Levant, where the sun should be rising. Almost a third of children and adolescents require humanitarian assistance. You can help us in humanizing the statistics, in developing an international peace corps of interns, of counterparts who can work with our young in addressing the incalculable harm to individuals, especially families in towns, cities, and regions where entire countries are on a physical, social, emotional, and uh, economic helter-skelter. So I would like to suggest that seemingly never-ending conflicts and the impact of COVID-19 means that the mental health of our young people is also at stake. And nobody considers anything other than mouthing the letters, PTSD, when speaking about soldiers returning. But what about the continuous bombing of children? There are more children in school than ever before. Why? Because we have a two-shift system now and a night, and, and night school. And there is no end to, to it unless we work at creating glimmers of hope. Improving our youth's physical, mental, and social well-being requires prioritization of uh, their vocational capacities. And I thank the United Nations Development Community for working hand-in-hand -hand with us in terms of the Syrian refugees in particular. Our population jumped from 3 million in the 90s to over 10 million now. And I would like to think that we do not make a distinction between one human being and another. Nevertheless, we must understand that sustainability does not have to come at the cost of social and economic progress. We have to talk about a developmental approach rather than a vulnerability approach alone. And I can discuss that in greater detail if and when you so wish. Thank you. Your Highness, thank you for that very frank answer uh, and, and very impressive to so many of us have admired the approach of the government of Jordan in dealing with uh, refugees and migrants and religious minorities who have fled to Jordan. Uh, your government has done a remarkable job in helping to cultivate that talent and I will If I may just say that when we took in 200 million people over one week from Mosul alone, Christians, not only Christians, but mainly Christian, our churches, our mosques, our homes, our hearts were open to these people. I know it, I lived it, and I'm proud of our achievement in that regard. If I may say respectfully, you should be proud. Mm. When I had the opportunity at my last visit to Jordan, I saw some of the work that was being done. Mm -hmm. And I must say that Jordan has been a leader globally 
in working to uh, respect uh, those regardless of where they come from and also the human dignity that uh, is at the heart of the work that you're doing. So uh, on behalf of uh, the audience, I would like to, to thank you. Marissa, I'm going to turn it to you. Do we have some questions from the audience? We do. We have a number of questions, Your Royal Highness. So I'll uh, read the first one out. In light of current water security in the region and specifically in Jordan, how do you see transboundary water cooperation between different countries? And do you anticipate that political sensitivities will allow transboundary water cooperation that might help reaching win-win deals? I thank you for reminding me that um, water basin management, Tigris and the Euphrates, for example, has been a subject of deep concern to uh, a Jordanian-based initiative in conjunction with, among others, the University of Manchester in England, where we're looking at the downstream, uh, as I said, of the Turkish uh, headwaters and talking about uh, the zoning, which would include municipal and industrial, agricultural and uh, uh, of course, uh, all the met methods of desalinating and, uh, of course, uh, conserving water resources. In terms of Jordan, Jordan is a country that has a story. If we overlook the Great African Rift Valley, which is an extension of what starts in East Africa and goes all the way up to the borders or, or within the borders of Turkey. I have always asked, is it not possible to heal the rift? And obviously there's a, a subscript to that because nations have occupied other nations. The security situation is at risk, but mainly because of the inequities that exist between the haves and the have-nots, the haves of water and power and the have-nots. And the ability to create joint efforts uh, in terms of saving, for example, the Dead Sea means not only uh, phosphate, potash, and downstream products being developed jointly in the region to the benefit and the uh, employment of people, but also the uh, agricultural achievements uh, becoming more uh, uh, sophisticated in terms of in markets. Much of the water in the West Bank now serves the coastal littoral. Uh, and of course, I don't want to refer to names because this is not what I regard as a political interview. But I want to say that uh, the Oslo Agreement did not come within the context of a vision. All of the agreements uh, basically talk about a plethora of projects, but they don't talk about uh, a regional development to create the conditions suitable for peace and to involve and recruit and enable uh, citizens to participate. I've always referred to the beautiful achievement of the Bodensee, uh, the lake of uh, uh, Constance between uh, uh, former, former um, uh, Second World War uh, participants, Germany, Austria, but of course, Switzerland, and the water is owned by the people of 300 towns. 
if we can think laterally, joined up handwriting, water means motivating people towards conservation and development of water, we can do something. But as you say, the situation is uh, dire at the moment, and particularly in the summer, I think that uh, what we have to do is to make a better effort to look at the essentials. And I just like to suggest that the social progress index in Jordan is one that cannot be uh, reviewed in its totality without looking at the Syrian question, which after all led to the Palestine question historically, I'm talking about 1919, and before that the Arab Nahda movement, which uh, centered around the, the Arab revolt, if you will, or the Arab Renaissance movement, without understanding that water is an essential uh, uh, solution to man-made catastrophes on a global scale that threaten our, we spoke about civilization earlier, our very existence. So I just want to make it clear that collective security and the greatest threat to global security, as Perry has put it, is climate change and it is not merely an environmental, environmental problem. It is a problem, one, of vulnerability, two, of development, three, coping and security, four, of statelessness. When you have people of different nationalities, we have 54 nationalities in Jordan uh, seeking uh, uh, occupation. International conflict which visits us from time to time and the toing and froing in the Middle East as you, at, at the moment uh, is, um, of course, di direct, directly triggered by the cost of post 9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, and elsewhere, where more than $8 trillion have been spent, the vast bulk of which was spent on kinetic military action, intelligence gathering, and drone strikes, mm. and only a tiny fraction went towards prevention. So I would like to suggest that uh, the uh, disaster of water uh, means uh, the disaster of the loss of tradition, a tradition of hospitality, a tradition of love thy neighbor. We know each other well enough to love our neighbors, but we end up losing our traditions. And I'd like to quote Hannah Arendt, who once said that the loss of tradition does not at all entail, entail a, loss of, a loss of the past. People like me and dinosaurs are regarded as those who live in the past. But for tradition and past, please accept that these are not the same. As believers in tradition on one side and believers in progress on the other would have us believe. We stand and fall by our shortcomings or by our uh, recognition of human worth. So thank you for the question, my listener. Thank you, Your Royal Highness. <clears throat> Another question from the audience. Demographers suggest there will be 2 billion more people by 2050. To provide the increase in humanity, the world will need new approaches to food, to water and healthcare. If innovation is an important part of the answer, what would suggest, or what would you suggest about global innovation, if and I may add, technology? Well, if I may suggest to you that the uh, uh, organization, at least its title, Never Normal, is a, an, a futuristic uh, a group of the young industrialists 
and innovators in the United States, strangely chaired by, I'm, I'm happy to say, a, a Jordanian. And never normal is just how we should uh, look at the present issue of innovation. Hmm. The uh, uh, innovative uh, uh, public in, in this country have done some outstanding things. And I would say that in terms of our uh, universities, joining with the World Science Forum, which participated in Jordan of two, three years ago now, the first meeting of the Europe-based science forum outside Europe was a, an opportunity for young entrepreneurs to meet in every aspect of mechanisms for, uh, for development. So I would like to suggest that uh, the, the participation of uh, the present in what you called innovation is uh, largely achieved by, believe it or not, the displacement of more than 8 million people outside South, throughout Southwest, Southwest Asia. The numbers seem daunting, but they do not convey the full damage of displacement. It is necessary, I think, to humanize our statistics and to recognize the educational uh, plus that these uh, uh, figures also carry with them. So investing in our human resources, protecting and investing in the region's human capital is uh, an issue which I would like to discuss with you as we discuss lives of youth in jeopardy in the Middle East, North Africa, as the UNICEF has put it. And I would re refer you to that, that particular report. I think I would... Um, probably stop at this, at, this, at this stage. Thank you. Thank you, Your Highness. Um, a related question to um, some of the points you raised uh, just now and earlier with regards to youth and um, workforce development. How can MENA countries unleash the private sector to achieve the goals of job creation and reaching a sustainable future? Well, I personally believe that the whole context of the private uh, sector should become a part of a national uh, effort for um, improvement of our uh, standing in the world. We, I just attended a, a meeting yesterday of the um, uh, initiation of the Jordan-Japan Friendship Society. And uh, there I find the private sector, uh, who have, of course, entered the New York market, uh, particularly in terms of uh, uh, medicine and uh, medical uh, supplies, of course, were enhanced by during the COVID uh, crisis. Jordanians um, are um, expressing the readiness and the capability to uh, uh, prov provide vaccines. All of these issues have been uh, uh, an indication of a plus in terms of Jordanian private sector. But I would think that uh, in terms of the mentality, the whole attitude to uh, private sector development, uh, Jordan has to become an entrepreneurial uh, country because, quite honestly, the relative stability that we enjoy is uh, not entirely of our own achievement. It's also a reflection of the fact that Baghdad and uh, uh, Damascus are in the state that they are. 
And I'm finding it rather sad to say that the jumping, the leapfrogging of uh, Jordan by the um, advanced cooperation between Israel and the uh, normalizing countries does mean that we have to uh, hold our own and uh, stand on our own two feet. But in this subject, on, on this subject as well, I quite honestly did not come prepared to answer your question. Thank you. Thank you, Your Highness. Another question from the audience. Will Jordan seek to enhance peace and normalization process in light of President Biden's trip to the Middle East? Well, that's a very good question. But I think that um, in terms of the normalization to which the questioner is alluding, I want to make it very clear that while occupation of Palestinian lands continues, while the rejection of international uh, resolutions continue, I think it's going to be very difficult to explain outside the rarefied uh, consultation rooms of the region and the world why it is we're not moving towards peace. Don't forget that even before the uh, Ukraine-Russian uh, 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 confrontation, the uh, Middle East had been relegated to a back seat. And I, I find that extremely saddening that we are only called in because of our resources, not because of our ability to be destructive towards each other's lives and very existence. But in terms of normalization, as I said, how can we heal the rift? How can we look at uh, uh, a vision of peace when we all we want to do is to talk about projects and benefiting from each other's uh, uh, open-handed invitation with both hands, if you will, to uh, participate in, in a, a form of, I don't know, um, seeking protection from beyond the region in uh, uh, issues which are uh, related more to the Iran confrontation or alleged confrontation with the, re the region than the Arab-Israeli uh, confrontation of today. So um, if we want to look at normalization, then let's talk about environment, governance, and the future of the Middle East. Let's talk about the green-blue deal for the Middle East. Let's talk about the ecological threat register of 2020, understanding ecolo ecological threats. And most importantly, let's look at achieving sustainable goal two of those SDGs, zero hunger in Jordan by 2030. Mm -hmm. State of food security and nutrition is one of the main issues that uh, come to my mind, food and waste. But as far as Jordan and Israel are concerned, peace to prosperity, a vision to improve the lives of the Palestinian and the Israeli people is where we should be going. As for Jerusalem, from past divisions to a shared future, I think that is an issue which uh, should focus centrally on the uh, management of holy space in Jerusalem. And there is where I think the representatives of the world religions should uh, try to avoid conflict on an annual basis, as they have succeeded in other parts of the world. Northern Ireland comes to mind. The containment of endemic conflict. As for 
the next two decades and Israel. I, I, again, I would I wonder whether we have anyone to talk to. They have had so many elections. I think it was five in three years. And is this one way of sidestepping the issue? Or can we look at Israel and the region or Israel in the region or Israel with a special uh, set of criteria and law that applies to it and to no one else? So we are always responding. And I think that compound, compounding our misfortunes politically, economically, you asked me about uh, young people and entrepreneurism, it means changes in poverty since the outset of the outset of this COVID-19 on Syrian refugees and host communities. The ongoing conflict in the Kurdistan region of Iraq uh, and of course the conflict in Lebanon. And a regional overall strategic review is required. Rather than going and doing it piecemeal behind closed doors, I think we have to discuss the issues as themes, the dynamic of refugee returns. And before my Israeli commentators um, um, jump on the bandwagon, what about Syrian refugees and their migration intentions? Mm -hmm. So I would suggest that uh, uh, normalization goes beyond uh, security and fighting against and supplying weapons but uh, it focuses centrally on cultural affinities. So one visit by head of state, however well intended, is not going to achieve cultural affinity unless the question is one of conversation and good listening. Thank you. Thank you, Royal Highness. And back to another climate-focused question. Can shared climate risks create an opportunity to enhance climate resilience beyond political borders? To what extent can cooperation in environmental issues, except for water, benefit societies and build trust at the political levels across the MENA region? Well, I, I would say yes and no. I mean, let me put it this, uh, this way. The, the report, which was published in December 2020, that probably has uh, fueled some of these questions uh, in, uh, in a certain aspect, the green-blue deal for the Middle East, as it was described, mm -hmm. uh, put forward the blueprint for positive interdependence in terms of the water and energy sectors of Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. This was not a report that had been discussed. It was not a concept that had evolved. It was not a report to which technicians had uh, applied themselves. It was a major uh, initiative uh, that took place and uh, noting that Israel and Palestine are planning on raising their renewable energy target, target to 30% and 10% respectively by 2030, but that Israel lacks the necessary 50,000 dollars of land and to Palestine the funds to do so. So a study was commissioned by an environmental group and of course assisting the Arab world in meeting the challenges is an issue which, uh, of course, finds great uh, favor in, uh, in terms of international funding. But I would like to suggest that if we're talking about by 2050, 
Jordan's increase with uh, Jordan's GDP would increase by three to four percent, with total revenue flows allowing Jordan to purchase desalinated, desalinated water, as quantities fully covering its own water needs, and still be left with one billion dollars annually. So I would suggest that basically what we're saying is a policy paradigm that prioritizes solvable final status status issues such as water is the only way to go. Track two, of course, sometimes is more uh, um, positive than track one it can afford to be. But at the same time, when you present the track two report, people say it's premature, it's premature. The skill is to know when it is mature enough to move. This is why in the days of Prime Minister Rabin, and the late Hussein, we were able to move and there was a euphoria of goodwill and optimism. But today I would suggest that uh, in view of the European Investment Bank's financial support to Israel and Gaza desalination plants, in addition to the EIB and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development's large investments in solar energy production in Jordan, I think that the EIB is on the inside rail of trying to create conditions where some of the written hopes and expectations can be understood as actually taking human form on the ground. But we do need immediate interim steps. We do need greater pre-feasibility studies and greater attention to concepts rather than projects alone. Thank you, Your Royal Highness. And um, another question from the audience. Um, in order for more cooperation between countries, there needs to be an effort to forget century-old rivalries. So what needs to happen in order for that to happen? Well, that's a very kind question from the uh, participant. I would probably be saying the same thing if the conflict was um, uh, elsewhere and not immediately uh, at my front door. So I would uh, possibly suggest that the uh, peacemakers co covenant toward legitimate and, and durable peace should be considered. But how is peacemaking conceived and implemented by the partners to a potential peace? What is the primary focus for the moment? Is it a peace process? Unfortunately, if you look at the immediate uh, background of the last several years, since the uh, Camp David Agreement and the Jordan-Israel uh, Agreement, I think that you would find, and for that matter, even the almost achieved Syrian-Israeli uh, uh, Agreement, that external uh, actors are at work with local actors and peace processes are reconfigured when state with, within the context of state and society relations. So the issue is extremely compli complicated. It's not uh, helped by the fact that we do not have, as in the uh, case of King Hussein at that time, God bless his soul, a moral compass, a lodestar, or a partnership compact between uh, a leader and his people. So I would uh, suggest as the principles of peace have enunciated, 
the dignity, solidarity, humility, and enhancing legitimacy are part and parcel of lasting peace. Thank you, Your Royal Highness. And one last question coming from the audience focused on uh, the United States and Jordan. How can U.S. policymakers um, make sure that Jordan is supported as a key partner to the United States? Well, I believe by understanding the fact that we are central to the Levant region. If you recall, the European Union called us the Mashariq region when we signed an agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s, we were Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. The difference being that Egypt and Syria were European uh, uh, Mediterranean littoral countries uh, on the south of the Mediterranean, uh, they were recognized as such. Jordan was recognized as geopolitically Mediterranean, which means that in terms of negotiations, we should have access to the sea as we did in 1949 in Haifa, for example. But uh, I asked the European, and maybe the question should also apply, if Portugal does not have a foothold on the Mediterranean, why is it a full partner in, in, in Europe? And yet we only have the sobriquet of geopolitically Mediterranean. I think that uh, the future of pipelines, both of oil and gas, seem to be indicating that the Mediterranean is part of the sphere of uh, uh, Jordanian um, uh, life. And I think that um, in terms of the uh, future, if there is to be any openness between contiguous realities, any form of Benelux considered in the region, then there obviously has to uh, be a realization. I think Cy Vance was the only Secretary of State that I remember who spoke about the Mediterranean as a nexus, not a divide. But today, with all the discussions of NATO and uh, the alphabet soup of uh, uh, CSC and OSC and whatever, I think we have to cut through all of this, both on the Jordanian side and the American side, and identify clearly what is expected of both parties. Obviously, uh, there is an American vision. Obviously, there is an American strategy also, we assume. But at the same time, how does it take into the into consideration the, uh, the legitimacy of continuing to develop what we would hope can be taken into consideration. And that includes adopting uh, and developing hybrid solutions to face our extremely uh, hybrid situation. And uh, that, of course, uh, means less uh, recognition of bilateral relations. I mean, American delegation visits uh, capitals X, Y, and Z, and goes back and reports individually to their particular uh, policy makers. The Europeans do the same, but there is never, as, as I can identify, a regional understanding of what the Levant could and must mean. We are the hinterland to oil. If we look at Iraq, uh, I mean, the Arab hinterland, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, we come up to 71 million people. If we were to add in circumstances possibly unimaginable today, that nothing is unimaginable in the Middle East, 
I mean, do you remember that CENTO existed in 1958, the Central Treaty Organization? Southeast Asia had CETO, and these included the participation of Iran, Pakistan, straddling as Pakistan does South Asia and, and uh, Southwest Asia, Turkey, Iraq, and for a short time in the Baghdad Pact, Jordan. We paid the price for that. And now people are talking about new security arrangements. Does a security arrangement mean transient security or does it mean in-depth peace and stability? I think we have to talk about stabilizing the Levant rather than uh, just um, responding to the uh, question of the here and now. The weakening of multilateralism is, uh, if I can put it to you, mirrored in the strengthening of hyper-nationalism in many countries. And it won't be sufficient to mend the multilateral system. It is necessary instead to envisage new principles for creating a global governance grid that serves the interests of human civilization and not the nation states. And as my friend Sandeep Pasleka from India at the Strategic Foresight Group has put it, maybe we need the United Peoples, not the United Nations. Thank you very much, Your Royal Highness. Over to you, Ambassador Green. Thanks, Marissa. Thank you, Your Royal Highness. This has been a remarkably uh, fruitful discussion, I think. I think His Royal Highness has made it clear to all of us his view, which I personally agree with, that we're at a crossroads moment. Uh, he's helped us to understand some of the key decision points, including displacement, food and water, security, conflict, uh, all made more desperate in some ways by changing climate and its fallout. But what he has urged is that we not be project-based in our response, but relationship-focused, that we focus on human dignity, and we focus on, and if I may say, I particularly liked his term, positive interdependence, if we're going to meet these challenges. I, I would ask our audience to go to the wilsoncenter.org backslash MEP website, and you can see more of His Royal Highness's thoughts and his very good contribution, civilization and its discontents, and also the Wilson Quarterly and the essay by King Abdullah that talks about humanity in motion, human displacement, what Jordan has faced and what Jordan is taking on. Your Royal Highness, thank you so much for being with the Wilson Center again. We very much appreciate your thoughts at this important moment in history. Thank you. Looking forward to meeting you personally at some stage, and thank you both so much for having me. Thank you so much, Your Royal Highness. Mm -hmm.